Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. The first time I was there visiting you, Dusty, you had videos on your phone that you shared with me. Videos of you and your husband and your kids having a really, really, really good time. You guys were playing a game. What, like, what did you call that game? Not my hands. Not my hands. Was what we called it. Yeah. How did it work? The best night we could come up with at least. <laughs> um, I don't know if you remember the Sesame Street skits where they had the dog with the shirt on and it had hands coming around the sides. Do you remember <laughs> that? People would put mm-hmm. their hands in the shirt and they would, so there was this this image of this dog with hands and they would narrate over it and it was always funny. And that was a, a similar concept to the game is one person would stand um, or sit and the other person would be behind them, not looking at what they were doing and would put their arms through the shirt that was just over the head of the person in front of you and your hands were working with them um, to either, well, the two activities we picked, one was uh, feeding each other pudding (laughs) or putting on on makeup. Um, So the person whose hands were doing the work had no idea what they were doing. And we thought it would be really fun, a little bit of a messy activity, but the kids would get a real kick out of it. Well, I have to say from the view of the video and from the view of the the observers there in the room, your kids from the front, it looked seamless. It looked like those were, you know, whoever's head it was, it looked like it was their hands too. So yeah. I, I highly, I've never, I haven't tried the game yet, but I were going to, and I highly recommend it. But um, so the, the eating the pudding. So who remind me who, cause didn't you switch? Yeah. Yeah. You fed David the pudding, okay. right? Yeah. And then, And then he was the hands for your makeup. makeup. Yeah. So. Caution on the makeup one. Don't poke each other in the eyes. (laughs) Yeah. 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 But the pudding, I mean, he looked hungry. I mean, he was chasing that spoon all around and the spoon was sometimes getting close to his mouth and other times not. I think he was just trying to avoid it getting all over his face, but uh, (laughs) that wasn't my goal. (laughs) No. I wasn't exactly trying to help him get it to his mouth. <laughs> but the thing I remember the most about watching those videos with you was the just pure joyous laughter from all involved. The kids, yeah. the kids were just rolling. And you <laughs> yeah. know, uh, for obvious reasons, it's pretty hilarious. And, but, but you too as well, you really, really looked like it was a happy moment. Oh, it was. Th- that that was uh, a video that those were videos that you recorded toward the end of David's active alcoholism. Yeah, seven months before he died. Seven months before he died. It and it's been just over a year since he died. Yeah. And and that so. The reason I wanted to lead with the story of the video is for a couple of reasons. First, you know, 
I think it's really important. And I'm going to stumble a little on this one because this isn't smooth for me by any means to talk about this. But the, the idea that when we're alcoholics, we're just kind of mean tyrants raging through the world. I mean, there certainly are. That's part of it. That's part of it. But mm-hmm. that's not who we are. That's not how we want to be. We want to be having fun with our family and having our wife smear pudding all over our face and, <laughs> and laughing with the kids mm-hmm. and, and those glimmers, those, those parts that are joyous, they're trapped inside. They're trapped inside with something else, with an evil force. That's, that's um, fighting for, for power and control as well. Um, we're talking today with our good friend, Dusty Shea. Um, Dusty's husband, David, took his own life just before Thanksgiving, um, right, uh, Thanksgiving a year ago. Um, and I, I shouldn't even say it that way. He didn't take his own life. Alcohol took, took him. Um, he died of the disease of alcoholism. Um, and so um, I want to contrast that picture that we just talked about, that beautiful, beautiful family picture. I don't, I mean, you're a little younger than us, Dusty. You have uh, more of a, you know, you're in a generation that's more prone to taking videos of everything that's going on and pictures, and you're much better at social media than we are. Um, so, and I'm so glad for that for you that you've got those, those memories. Um, we don't have anything like that, any, any videos like that. And I, as, as much fun as we've had with our family, um, boy, that's as, as, uh, beautiful of a picture of, of, like I said, pure joy as a, as a family could possibly have. I think, um, it wasn't an expensive vacation. It wasn't a, a, you know, fancy Christmas present. It was just having fun around the kitchen table. And that's as, that's as good as it gets. Um, I want to contrast that for just a second. When I, when I came to see you right after it happened, um, there were in the, you know, you guys live out in the country and you've got chickens and, and, you know, live in farmland. Um, and on your property, there were hundreds, I don't know, thousands maybe of little, uh, plastic bottles, little shooters of fireball, Mm -hmm. which was his, that cinnamon whiskey. That was his drink of choice, at least toward the end. Huh? And, um, I mean, I, I spent, I don't know, probably a couple hours, one of the days trying to pick them up. And my goal was, I thought, gosh, Dusty's husband has just passed. What can we do to help her? And I was at a loss. I'm not good in those situations. And I thought, well, at least I can clean up all these bottles. I'm going to clean them all up. And I mean, I was filling like hefty trash bags. I was picking up as many as I could. And it was like, they were never ending. Um, and so I just think that's, uh, that's the best way I can think of to contrast what was going on inside his head. Um, you know, here he's got the, the beautiful family side, but, but the evidence of what's of the turmoil is everywhere. What, what, I, I'm, I know I'm dominating the conversation, but it's, it's hard for me to ask a question about this because I don't want to sound stupid. But um, what was it like for you? So I will sound stupid. What was it like for you to have those, those shooters everywhere? I mean, you knew 
it was spiraling as well, didn't you? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I knew, honestly, a month, maybe two months before he passed. Um, it was warm enough outside. I remember this. The kids were out of school for a day and we went outside and intentionally picked up every alcohol bottle that we could find. All six kids and myself, we all took grocery bags outside, picked up everything that we could find and burned them. And it was with intention because the kids were just as exhausted as I was with dealing with the alcohol. Um, you know, David knew that that moment that you're describing with the, the family night, the family game night, he knew how joyful that was. And he wasn't drinking that night. He thought that whenever he was drinking, things were just as joyful. And for him, maybe it was, but for us, it wasn't. We could tell the difference when he was drinking and when he wasn't, it was, it almost felt like he was trying to force it. He was trying to force the joy, force the good time, force. To me, it felt like a justification. Look, I can be the same guy. Look, I can still be fun. I can still be happy and we can still laugh. Um, I guess I say that because definitely towards the end, the last few months, if he would try to be playful with me when I knew he was drinking, I just couldn't do it anymore. I didn't have it in me to pretend anymore. And he would get so angry with me for turning him away because he wasn't yelling in that moment. He wasn't taking anything out on me or being angry in any way, but I had been fighting that battle for so long that I couldn't stand there and pretend to have a good time with him, just waiting for the shoe to drop, waiting for something to set him off, waiting for me to say the wrong thing in the wrong tone of voice. Um, I didn't have the energy for it anymore. Um, I think it's interesting. My brain just backtracked for a minute because you talk about the videos that we have and the, the photos and, and I will say I am, I'm one of the elder millennials, right? <laughs> I, am, <laughs> I am a millennial technically, but you know, born in 88, I just barely make that cutoff. Um, and so I do think that my, my ability to, I just kind of naturally use social media and technology as ways to preserve memories, but particularly during that time, um, that was April of 2020. And that was about a month after my mom passed away. And I was really intentional about taking more photos and taking more videos uh, because I barely had anything of my mother. My mother hated having her pictures taken. <laughs> I think I have Oh, maybe two photos with my mother as an adult. Um, and one of them I asked her to take because it was the day that she told me and my sisters that she had cancer. And I was 
pretty, I don't want to say stunned because for her, it was a progressive disease. We kind of knew it was coming. It was a matter of time before her liver disease turned into cancer. Um, and so she agreed to take that one. And then there was one more that she had taken with me when I got my master's degree in 2019. Um, other than that, I don't have anything <laughs> from my mom. Um, so that was, that was part of my reasoning for taking all of those videos and, and photos. And, and I had no idea that they would be so important so soon. That's a, I mean, you, you've been through a lot as, as you're revealing to our audience in quick succession, losing your mother and your husband. Um, and that's kind of a, I had never thought of that. That's kind of an, a parting gift that her lack of willingness to be photographed gave to you to increase your desire to, to take the photos and videos um, mm -hmm. toward the end with David. Talk a little bit, if you would, about what was the cycle like toward the end with, with David? Did you have, I mean, he was battling. He, he talked about sobriety, attempted sobriety. Um, talk about what the cycle was like uh, as far as patches of sobriety and then relapse. I often talk about the last six months. Um, so... So, well, actually the last four months, really from July through November, that's four months, right? <laughs> um, those were really pivotal for me. And they just stick out in my mind because the highs were so high and the lows were so low. Um, and they switched so quickly and so abruptly from hour to hour sometimes. Um that's really what characterized our life was this constant unpredictable battlefield. Um, because even though you knew that there were gonna be moments that were okay when he was sober and things were gonna be good and wonderful and he was going to be present um, mentally and emotionally, you never knew when it was gonna end. Um, I remember many conversations with his friends with his family members where they would ask me you know I, I would show up to an event that we'd been invited to and they would ask me where David was and I would say well I came on my own because he'd been drinking and it was too much for me I just didn't want to be in that situation and they would give me this look and say I just talked to him like two hours ago he sounded mm. fine and yeah. I even had to rationalize it in my own head of thinking like, am I, am I crazy? Like, am I accusing him of drinking? Like, am I imagining smelling it on him? Am I, am I just hypersensitive to his emotional state? Am I blaming it on the alcohol? And I just, you know, I, I really tried to give him the benefit of the doubt, even though I knew in my gut that, yeah, he could flip on a dime. And I think part of it was how much he would drink and how fast um, because it was shooters. I know because we talked about it, David and I talked about it. He would buy those fireball shooters by the 10 pack because he felt like he could monitor his drinking better that way. I mean, we both know that's not how it works. 
but he felt like he could at least keep track of it because prior, you know, prior to this develop the development of that habit of buying the 10 packs, he would sometimes buy the pint or the liter. I don't even know how big those bottles are, you know, what the, the larger bottles and, yeah. and he just wouldn't stop until it was gone. And that was that buying that those 10 packs of shooters was his own way of trying to meter his drinking. Um, about a month though, before he passed away, maybe three weeks, we were standing in our driveway and he was sober and he had just gotten done with an interview with the <clears throat> child protective services. Um, and during that conversation, he talked about wanting to go <clears throat> to his doctor to get um, that antabuse medicine, the one that, that makes you vomit, you know, if you, if you take it every day and, and you decide to drink, it makes you violently ill. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and he said specifically that the fireball was his downfall because he craved the taste of it. He loved that sweet cinnamon taste. And he, so he said, it's not just, the alcohol, it's like, it's the cinnamon. It's, you know, that's, that's what I'm wanting. And in my head, that sounded like a justification. But he said, after three, three is the number. He goes, it only takes three. He goes, and I can feel the shift in myself. And he said, but one's not enough. And he knew, he knew how bad his drinking was. He knew how much, like how quickly he needed to get help. And I don't wanna say everybody was clueless. I think most people had a good idea of something he could do to help himself, but it had, in my opinion, the addiction itself had such a deep hold on him at that point, physically and psychologically. Um, he didn't know how to function without it. He didn't know how to manage his life, his stress, his problems. He didn't know how to feel everything <laughs> that needed to be felt from a day-to-day, -day, um, just in his day-to-day -day life. I might be trailing on a tangent now. Is that, am I answering no, your question? You're, you're, you're doing great. And, and as his, um, as his disease progressed, because as we know, alcoholism is a progressive disease. It only goes one direction. It can only get worse as time goes by. So you mentioned that it was medicinal. It was, he was using it for stress management and the stress was mounting as well, because you just talked about an interview with child protective services. You guys both have children from previous relationships so there were custody issues involved and his drinking was um, threatening his ability to parent the way that you guys had been accustomed to parenting. And, and I know you both, I, I've never met David personally, I should say that, but I just know from all the stories you've told and, and from knowing you um, at this point that, um, you guys, family was very important to both of you. So the idea of an interview with Child Protective Services and the idea of custody being on the table, um, that is as threatening as 
you know, a topic of divorce or job loss or, or family loss. I mean, that was a, a, a severe um, stressor for him. Um, could, could you just, did it, did it seem like the walls were kind of caving in on him? Could you, could you feel that? 100%. Um, I'll go back to mentioning those last four months of his life. Um, the lows had gotten so low because We've talked a lot in uh, the Echoes group about how when you start to set boundaries with an alcoholic, they tend to escalate their own behaviors, right? They're yeah. trying to get a reaction out of you, trying to get under your skin, trying to, to get that um, volatility from you. And I was getting, at that point, I was getting better and better at not engaging. Um, and so all of the verbal assaults I wasn't responding to anymore you know the just just the general the general insults that you know there were there were things that those small agreements that you make as couples you know like something that seems silly but at the end of the day if you if you go against it it impacts the relationship like like watching your favorite tv show together you know, a lot of couples do this where like, you can only watch episodes together. You can't watch them individually. You can't do it without me, you know? And it seems so simple and so silly, but if, if one person decides to watch that show without you intentionally, like you, like you're in the house, like this is, this is what happened. Sorry. I I'm being too vague. This is, this is what happened. It got to a point where there were things like that, you know, David and I always did certain things together. And whenever I stopped responding to the verbal insults, he would do those things without me, without talking to me as if I wasn't in the room, um, as if I wasn't in the house. And I didn't respond to those things either. Um, to me, it was a, it was a, a ploy to get a reaction out of me. Um, and it hurt. I'm not going to say it didn't hurt because it felt like he was intentionally trying to devalue our relationship. Um, so July before he passed, <clears throat> I guess I, I say all this to preface the fact that things started to get violent, physically violent. Um, and they, they started out smaller, you know, just um, <clears throat> blocking my way out of doors and rooms and, you know, chest to chest, pushing me back if I tried to walk past him or, or walk away from him, um, you know, trying to grab things out of my hands and, and things that not, unfortunately, not everybody thinks are that big of a deal. Um, you can't, when, when things at, at that level start to happen, at least my experience with it, and I know others have had a similar experience, you, you talk to somebody about what happened and they say, well, what did you do? What was your part in this? Um, how did you antagonize him? Surely he wouldn't have done that without, um, without being baited into it, you know? Um, or like, well, you know, 
there's no bruises, there's no physical evidence. So, I mean, could be worse, right? Like, um, <clears throat> but in July, um, that was the first time that he had gotten physically violent with me. Um, and the, the tipping point for me came, he was trying to get my phone out of my hand. Um, I was actually like, it was one of those nights where the switch had flipped so quickly and he'd been drinking. I could tell he'd been drinking. The kids were not at home, um, which tended to be when things would escalate more, uh, more easily, I should say. And I didn't want to be around him, um, even though he wasn't angry, even though, you know, and, and I, I smiled and I talked to him and I was just like, you know, I just want to spend some time alone tonight. I can tell you've been drinking. I just, I don't, I don't want to interact. Um, and his initial response was questioning me of like, what do you mean? Like, I'm not mad. I'm not yelling at you. I'm not blaming you for anything. Like, why don't you want to spend time with me? And I'm like, cause I can tell that you've been drinking. Like, I just don't like being around it. It doesn't matter anymore if you're mad or not. Like it's, you're, you don't look me in the eyes and your voice sounds different and you trail off on these tangents in your conversations. And like, we're not actually interacting. Like it's, it's just you interacting with air from my perspective. If like anybody could be standing in my place. It's not, we're not connected. It's not us. I don't want to be here. And his anger just kind of slowly built and then it turned to me saying like, I don't want to spend time with you tonight. Please just let me go upstairs. Let me be by myself. Leave me alone. And, and then it was boundary pushing and following me around and starting to yell at me. And then the insults started and it just kind of slowly built up. And I ended up um, picking up my phone and like recording a video. Cause I'm like, do you hear yourself? Do you hear? Like, I am asking you to leave me alone. And you're wondering, like, why I don't want to spend time with you. Because this is where it ends up. It's the boundary pushing. I tell you I'm not comfortable doing something. And you just push and push and push. And uh, my intention with the video was not to, like chastise him or hold anything against him I literally wanted him to go back when he was sober and watch it because I don't think and this is with any alcoholic I don't think when you are under the influence of alcohol that you really understand what you're doing and what the impact of your words and your actions and your tone and your body language and all that like we lose our faculties. We know this. Anybody who drinks knows this. We know that you get loud, you can get obnoxious. You know, it's, it's harder to have conversations with people and the worse it gets, you know, the, or the more you drink, the worse it gets. And um, he was very, very angry with me for taking a video. And I was getting angrier and more defensive and just trying to get him to understand that I needed him to walk away. Um, <clears throat> Dusty, and, did the, did the, did the video help you as well? I'm curious because you've described a couple of things. First of all, how quickly he would switch from, from fine David to, to this other, you know, um, 
under the influence of alcohol, David, um, you know, I, I know that it's almost like a form of gaslighting. We talk a lot about gaslighting when the alcoholic, when we say something to try to make the person, uh, our spouse feel like what they're seeing isn't really reality. Um, try to make them feel crazy. Um, yeah. So I got to imagine because he could switch so quickly that had to make you scratch your own head and be like, gosh, am I really seeing what I'm seeing? And then you talk about how, you know, when, when you would, um, ask for support from people, they would say, well, what was your role in this? Or, um, you know, what did you do to escalate it? Or maybe, maybe you're blowing it out of proportion a little bit. So you've got other people who, you know, love you. And I'm sure nobody was doing this intentionally, but are unwittingly accomplices in the whole gaslighting process. So having that, the video of how he was actually really behaving did that do anything for you, peace of mind wise, to be able to go back and be like, no, look, I'm looking at this. He really is acting this way. It's funny that you ask me that. I've never watched that video. Wow. I've still got it. I won't erase it. But every time I scroll past it, <clears throat> usually I'm looking for a video of one of the kids or, you know, I'm going back to try to reminisce about some other like positive nostalgic experiences in our relationship and I'll scroll past it and go what was that oh yeah and I just I've never watched it (laughs) um and David never watched it either I remember a conversation afterward telling him well because he he was very upset with the fact that I had been recording things I was recording things for evidence I wanted proof that what I was saying was happening was not crazy. I wasn't just blaming everything on him. I wasn't trying to, to say that I wasn't doing anything wrong. I just needed something, whether it was a, an argument that David and I were having where he said, well, I told you this the other day. And I'm like, no, that's not what you said. And then this whole new argument would start because he had been drinking when that original conversation had happened. And I started recording them because I'm like, look, I am not crazy. I am not just misremembering everything. Um, And I remember talking to him about that. Um, I did that also specifically because he had talked about his grandfather at one point was an alcoholic. Whiskey was his drink of choice. And that somebody had videotaped him, I think just coincidentally, while he was drunk and his grandfather saw that video at one point and it was like, oh my gosh, this is how I act when I'm like this. And it changed everything for him. And so there was part of me that was like, is this what I need to do like for you? Like, do you need to see like physical evidence of this when you're sober? And at the time during that conversation, he just kept nodding slowly and listened and kind of understood. He was still upset. He was still angry. He still felt like I had invaded his privacy. And he had every right to feel that way because it was a desperate act. Like, I don't think that it's okay to just record people, (laughs) you know, without them knowing, like at, at all times, like that's not, that's not me, but we never did go back. And, and look at those. I told him that I was not going to use them for anything against him. I was not going to try to like build some case, you know, and, and, and say that he wasn't a good 
husband or father or whatever, that wasn't my intention, but that whenever he was ready, the videos would be there. The audio would be there so that he could hear himself. And uh, we never got to that point. Let me ask you about what was going on. We've talked a lot about David. Let's talk about what was going on specifically for you during this time, during these last four or six months. You, you joined us in Echoes of Recovery. I think it was in the summer before, um, before that November. Um, and you were one of many people who the initial, you know, we do some emailing as part of um, the getting to know each other process, but then the first actual contact with Echoes of Recovery is a video call um, between you and Sherry and I, and you were in your car for that video call. And that is Mm -hmm. so, so, so common um, because it's, you know, often it's joining a program like this is um, something that someone else doesn't need to know about, whether it's the husband or, or the rest of the family. And I don't know if that was specifically why you were in your car, but I remember that you were in your car um, and you were, um, you know, a victim of the gaslighting. Uh, you, you were desperate for the connection that would make you feel like, um, what you were seeing and what you were hearing and what you were experiencing was actually happen happening. And you weren't crazy to be feeling the way you were. So we got to witness you from that point where we're talking in the car, um, for the next several months, you got stronger and stronger and stronger, um, and like, you know, you, you created boundaries that were reasonable and logical. And, you know, we always talk with people, right. That the boundaries aren't about them. The boundaries are about you. What, you know, it isn't, Hey, my boundary is you can't drink anymore. My boundary is, um, I'm not going to be around alcohol. So you can choose to, uh, not drink and be around me, or you can have a different choice. Um, and you were getting really, really good at that. Can you talk to us a little bit about, even as you're watching him spiral, how were you feeling? How were you doing as you were learning more about the disease and, and getting better at managing it? You know, it's funny you say that. And I'm like, holy cow, like that time period that you're talking about from joining Echoes until he passed, which was seven months, eight months, felt like years. Um. But when I first joined, I did so because I knew I needed support. I knew I was at a point where I could not fight the battle on my own anymore. And I don't mean fight David. I mean, just, just living with someone with an active addiction. Um, it's a battle every day. And <clears throat> you had posted something in Elephant Journal um, and then had shared sherry's book about okay he's sober now what you know and i resonated with so much of that even though david wasn't sober like i that that's what i pictured for our future like i still even even at the time when i joined echoes i thought okay like i just need to get support myself we'll get through this he'll get sober and then i'll have like a strong foundation of what's next Right. I was kind of planning for the future, even though I needed help in the moment. And there was definitely in the beginning a feeling of desperation of like, how do I get this to stop? How do I stop this from continuing to spiral out of control? 
and slowly and reluctantly accepting the fact that I could not stop the spiral, that it was not just up to me. Um, learning, well, learning to trust myself that the boundaries that, that I needed were okay because inevitably you start to set boundaries with someone who has an addiction and they will push and they will tell you that you're just controlling, that you're just manipulative, Mm -hmm. that you're just trying to control them, that you don't want them to have a good time. You don't want them, you know, and, and it, you're already doubting yourself so much because usually we have some kind of lack of boundaries. People that are, (laughs) that are in a relationship with an addict usually have some issue setting boundaries themselves. Um, and so for me, I was already doubting myself so much and, and constantly second guessing myself. Is this okay? Is, am I just trying to be controlling? Am I ruining the, the one good thing that I've had in my life relationship wise? Because I mean, outside of his drinking, David and I were so deeply connected, so deeply connected. I mean, the, the kind of connection that, that most people don't know is is even real (laughs) um movie kind of love and I mean I hate to say it because it sounds so cliche like it's it's more than that it's that that connection where you kiss and time stops and the world just falls away and nothing matters except the fact that you are both there together and I want to say that because Even that, even that depth of love wasn't enough. It doesn't fix everything. It didn't just save him. (laughs) That is how insidious addiction is. That is how evil and how, how deep of a grasp it can have on a person. Um, there's not a single person in our, our lives that knew both of us together, that knew us, that did not see that, that connection that we had, that depth, that level of love, the fact that we could have a conversation across the room with no words, <laughs> you know, just looking at each other. Um, everybody saw it all the time and pointed it out to us when we would struggle and we would wonder, like, is this relationship worth it anymore? And, and they would tell us it's your decision, but I see it. I see what you guys share and it's special. Um, so it was this, it was this slow and torturous process those last few months of grieving that loss because addiction was getting in the way. And I was, even though David was still there, we were still married. We were still together. I, I never wanted to divorce him. I wanted um, a separation at, at times just for a feeling of safety in distance so that we could both focus on each other. Um, That's why I was in the car in that first video conference that we had, because I was living with my sister. My mom had died three weeks before that. Um, I caught David sneaking alcohol on a date. We had gone for a walk together and (laughs) he walked into um, our shop that was on our property um, to, to put some mail on the table in there. And he even invited me in and I said, no, I'll just wait here for you. And I waited and I waited and I waited 
and I walk into the shop and I'm catching him downing shooters. And, and he, and at that point he knew that I was, I couldn't handle the alcohol anymore. He knew how I felt about it. And so if I had been in that shop with him, he would not have drank because he wouldn't do it in front of me anymore. He hadn't brought alcohol in the house in over a year at that point. He did all of his drinking Mm -hmm. in his truck and out in the shop. So, and, and, and that's when I, I went to stay with my sister for a while because I just didn't have the emotional capacity to deal with it and my mother's death at the same time. Like it was exhausting. Um, those last, those last few months grieving the loss of a marriage with a man that was still standing in front of me, but I didn't know how to save. I didn't know if he was going to choose to save himself. I didn't know if what I was doing was good or if it was just hurting things worse. Um, I was just trying to feel safe. I was trying to keep myself safe. I was trying to keep the kids safe. And the closer it got to the end of his life, the more and more difficult that became. Um, specifically because we were a blended family. You, you've learned so much and gained so much strength over this period. As we talked about boundary setting, um, understanding the disease. I mean, you're a scientist. That's what you do for a living. And anyone who knows you knows that's how your mind operates. So understanding, uh, understanding what was going on was really important to you. And you gained that knowledge and, and you did what you had to do, but, but yeah, and you knew that you couldn't control it. You knew you couldn't stop it. Um, but yet this is a really difficult question for me to ask, but, um, you know, I, I think what keeps people locked in the, the traumatic cycle of addiction often longer than they necessarily would have wanted to, um, is the fact that they have this hope that they can make it go away, that they can prevent it. Um, and like, we meet people all the time that, that they eventually, for instance, for instance, they eventually get divorced and then they say, gosh, you know, I held on for so long because if he got sober, if he got healthy, um, I didn't want it to be after I had already decided to move on. And then I would miss out on, on that period. Um, but I, I regret the fact that I stuck it in, stuck it out for so long because it just wasn't going to happen. There was nothing I could do about it. And I, so ultimately I wasted uh, five years of my life hanging in there, hoping I could make it happen. So we all know logically that you can't control it. You can't stop it. Um, but when David died, um, was that knowledge, had you done enough research, had you connected with enough people, were you solid in your belief that there's nothing you could have done or did the, the, did the doubt creep in and, and did you wonder, gosh, what if I had done something differently? Both. Um, immediately I didn't have a lot of guilt because of how violent things had gotten the night that he took his own life. Um, I knew that me leaving, taking the kids out of that situation, I knew it was the best choice for us that night. Um, and 
I think as often as I can picture, well, what if I had been there? What if I had gone back? What if I had caught him before he made that decision? I can see it going both ways, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it really just depends on how much alcohol was in his system. Had he, you know, had he been sober or had, you know, I'll say a little, you know, alcohol in his system, you know, the, the four or five shooters that he knew caused a change in him, but not so much that he was still, I don't know, like just not blackout drunk, maybe, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe in that moment, I, I would have been able to talk him down off of a ledge, but there's, there's also a big part of me that realizes that things were so volatile and so unstable just with him and between us that night it could have ended much much worse yeah um you could not be here talking to us potentially yeah and i and i've i've heard stories i don't and i i don't think that david my husband would ever be capable of that kind of thing but when david drank he wasn't my husband anymore he was something else and um but i've I've heard plenty of stories of people specifically alcoholics in a drunken rage taking out their spouse or well forcing them to watch (laughs) watch them take their own lives and um so I don't have any any guilt about that night. I never really have. The guilt kind of creeped in over the next uh, few months after his death as I thought about the course of our relationship. And, you know, he was sober when we met. He hit his two-year sobriety anniversary um, one month after we started dating. And it was two months after that that he relapsed for the first time in our relationship and so it was those moments that I thought about those moments where there were there were certain things that I didn't know I didn't know about addiction I didn't know about myself or about him I just I didn't understand the gravity of how addiction really affects people I had grown up surrounded by functional alcoholics and I had seen people lose jobs and marriages and well essentially their lives like even though they were still alive they had no life left honestly I look back at it now and at the at that point in my life I really thought that people who chose I thought that people who were addicts who were alcoholics had just made a decision to not fight it I really, I I never saw anybody fight their addiction or try to get sober, definitely not successfully prior to David. And so for him to say, yeah, I've been sober almost two years, like, great, good for you. Like, to me, that was just as simple of a choice as it was to to drink and just not overindulge. Um, I wish I had known more then. I'll say that, you know, I wish I had known more about how to set boundaries. You know, that that's where the guilt comes in is all those little moments that at the time didn't seem that pivotal, mm-hmm. but they 
they most definitely were. <laughs> how how has this last year been? Um, I, I'm always curious, especially we're in the middle of the holiday season. Uh, I mean, it happened right before Thanksgiving a year ago. Um, so you had that that first, uh, you know, Thanksgiving, which I'm sure is a blur. Um, but then you've had this past Thanksgiving a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, we're in the holidays again. You went you went all through the summer, you know, which is a whole different, you know, set of family experiences typically. Um, so you've been through the calendar is what I'm trying to say. Uh, how, how has it been for you? Has, has there been any, um, you know, is what's the grieving process been like for you and the kids? Is it, is it getting any easier? Or is that just a really stupid thing to ask someone? I don't think it's stupid. Um, because it's difficult to explain. I think for those of us that have lost, you know, a spouse, um, it's, it's like explaining childbirth to somebody that's never had a child, you know, like it's, I mean, you can talk about it and talk about it and talk about it and you don't really understand the experience until you go through it yourself. So no, it's not a stupid question, but like I said, those of us in the club, right. In the widows, widower club, especially in my opinion, those of us that are younger and have lost a spouse to suicide, um, there's this like, <laughs> there's this knowing that there's no way we could explain to anybody what we're going through. And so you be, I don't want to say you become tolerant to it, but there's a certain level of compassion that I can have for people that haven't been through this experience. And if they really do ask like a dumb question or say something, I'm just like, okay, <laughs> and I, just, I just don't, I'm like, okay, thank you. Like, <laughs> it's just short answer. And I don't talk about it anymore. And I'm just like, wow, they're really clueless. Like it's okay. Um, and that's not their fault. It's okay. But grief felt, I think, unsurprisingly very overwhelming at first. Um, you know, and I've written about it as this icy lake deep inside of a cave, um, that started out very, very dark and sinister and scary. Um, but I knew that there was no way around it. I had to dive into it. Um, I knew that for myself. I guess theoretically, you don't have to, right? You can spend your life trying to tiptoe around that, that lake, then that cavern and trying to avoid. Um, but that's, that's not who I am. And especially after all of the work that I had put into myself and trying to learn boundaries and get healthier, you know, and have healthier relationships. I, I couldn't just stop at that point. Um, and so with, I mean, with lots of support from friends and, you know, some of my family and my therapist and, you know, I, I was able to take a deep dive into that lake and then slowly, but surely I realized that not all of it is scary. It's more of a bittersweet type of thing. Um, you know, the first year, I think I was more surprised about how many things would remind me of David. Um, 
I assumed that for the first few months, you know, that everything would remind me of him. But then, you know, we got to the summer and I discovered a whole new set of triggers, you know? Um, oh yeah. The last time I went camping, this was my experience last year with David. Um, and those, those memories would just come flooding in at the most random times. It was not something I could control. I wasn't consciously thinking about a specific memory. It was the sight of something, uh, a feeling, you know, the, the smell, it was, you know, all of those, all those small memory triggers that, that we have. Um, and it would just hit me all of a sudden. And then a wave of grief would usually follow, you know, behind it pretty shortly, especially if it was a good memory, you know, if it was one that, <clears throat> that I missed, um, there were also moments where I was relieved because I would remember driving down a specific section of road and especially during those last six months of his life the anxiety that I would feel every single time I drove down that road because I I didn't know what I was heading into with the you know for the evening with him um and so I would I would then drive that same section of road and I would feel the anxiety come up and I would wonder like where is this coming from and then it would just kind of slowly dawn on me that like this is when I would get anxious with him and it would soften a little bit. And I would remember all of the events that had caused me to have anxiety, you know, that, that built that up in me. And somehow it would be this comforting sense of like, I wasn't crazy. Like these events really did happen. Um, my body was, was, doing me a service by generating anxiety and, and setting off my fight or flight response. Like it was trying to protect me. The, the nervousness that I felt all the time on being on edge, like there was a reason for that. And I can see that clearly now because I'm not in that environment anymore. And I don't feel <clears throat> those anxieties anymore. And if I was still in it, I don't think I could tell you that. I think I would continue, would have continued because I did this in the past to just blame it on myself. Oh, I have this chemical imbalance in my brain. My brain just generates anxiety. There's not a real reason for me to be scared. There's not a real reason for me to be upset about something or to be nervous about the situation. It's all just in my head. And I would try to stop my body from having that reaction. And now that I'm out of it and I see how little anxiety I have, it just, it, brings me back to a whole it's a whole different perspective on myself and on the situation um I think because of that I've been able to have some more compassion with my kids as their waves of grief hit um I've not always been the greatest at recognizing them especially because you know kids aren't always able to vocalize what they're feeling and so sometimes for them it would it would manifest as just a bad mood, you know, being really cranky, being really mean to their siblings, lashing out, um, doing poorly in school, you know, and, and I've learned, <clears throat> I have to be careful not to overanalyze it, but I've learned to recognize those and to question, okay, you're, you're not acting like your normal self. I know who you are. You're my child. And so I will pull them aside in the bedroom and sit down. What's going on? You know, talk to me. And I have been very fortunate that my kids feel safe enough with me that those conversations usually result in a huge emotional catharsis for them. 
I cannot fix their grief. I cannot bring their dad back. I cannot bring, um, you know, I cannot fill that, that void that's in them, but I know exactly, um, well, I can't even say that. I, I know the pain that they're feeling of the loss. I don't know what it's like to lose a parent as a child. You know, I, I don't know that, but I can just sit and hold space for them. I don't have to try to fix it. You know, I can just hold them and tell them, yeah, this sucks. You got ripped off. <laughs> like this is, this is a terrible experience that no kid should ever have to live through. You know, and I, I try when I, when I'm in a really good place, I try to point out the things that they're being really successful at, you know, but, um, you know, saying, look at what you've overcome, look at what you've, you know, you're so strong. You're only 10, you're only 13, you're only eight, you know, but you've made it this far and you've done so well. And, you know, I try to point out the things that make them strong because they are, and I know they probably don't feel like it, but it's hard to feel that helpless as a parent. <laughs> are, are you able to take that same advice yourself? And what I mean by that is, I mean, with what you've been through, not just with David, but, but you've been through a lot, Dusty, um, in your life that we haven't even, you know, that we won't touch on um, mm -hmm. today. There's just been a lot. And, you know, you are quite possibly the strongest person that we've ever met. Um, your, your intelligence, your um, desire to understand, your willingness to seek help. Um, I mean, all the different types of therapy that you've, you've gone through and that have been effective for you. Is there, I mean, I know that the grief is first and foremost, right? Because you lost your husband, you lost your soulmate, you lost that, that love that, I mean, you teared us both up when you were describing that a few minutes ago. Um, but the, the strength, the wisdom, um, the compassion, the empathy that you've gained as a result, I'm not saying that you would you know, you would pick this as your choice. Yeah. I'm glad this happened to me. I'm no, nobody would ever ask you to say that, but can you at least take some solace in the knowledge of the warrior person that this has created? I mean, do, do you know how strong and powerful you are? Do you know, um, that what these experiences have turned you into? I'm getting better at seeing that it's not intuitive for sure. Um, but I have been actively seeking help to try to heal these things that I've been through, you know, the, the, the traumas that I had in my childhood and all this stuff um, since 2017. And I am very like sure-footed and strong and confident in the woman that I've been since 2017. And I am learning to forgive who I was when I didn't know any better, you know, I, I'm learning to validate her experiences, the person that I was before 2017. Um, you know, sometimes when you have been the victim of a trauma, you can get stuck in just telling that story over and over and over and over again and continuing to be the victim. And I no longer feel like the victim. However, I do continue to tell those stories because every time I hear them come out of my own mouth, I, I see it a little more clearly, 
it's only been the last year or so that I've been able to tell stories about things that I've been through and actually feel, oh my gosh, I lived through that. Um, and so I am learning to give myself more credit, um, <clears throat> slowly, slowly, but surely. Um, I actually made a, <laughs> a TikTok video about this a couple of, um, weeks ago, I think, because I was working so hard before David passed, like I said, to, to work on myself and to try to figure out how to be the healthiest person I could in my situation. And when he died, um, essentially the system, right. The internal system that, of, of survival, like that I had, that I had built, right. We all have these defenses and these, if you want to picture it, like, like a giant, you know, watchtower with a moat and a, and a fort, you know what I mean? Built around our, our, ourselves. And and we try to protect ourselves. And, and I had built those things over the course of my entire life. And then when David died, that system that I had built was not prepared for that kind of loss. I had never gone through something like that. And everything started to crumble quite literally all of my defenses and it was the scariest experience um but because of that i have been able to expose some vulnerabilities bring to light some things that needed to be brought to light there has been a level of healing that i would not be able to experience without this level of loss i would never wish this experience on anybody And I don't know why I had to live through it. It doesn't really matter. It's happened, right? And I've got to make the best of it. Um, But it almost feels like... I, I can look at David's death and I can see the gift. Um because I know that this is the kind of healing he wanted for me. He wanted it for himself too, but he had a much harder time accepting that, you know, and, and actively seeking it out. But I know that this is the level of healing that he wanted for me. And, and I know that he would be so proud of me and what I've, what I've done and how far that I've come in. I'm trying, I don't want to put a silver lining on, on a tragedy. I'm not trying to do that. I just know that when David died, it cracked something inside of me that I would not have gotten to know. At least not, at least uh, not as quickly as I have. <laughs> I can't say it never would have happened, but uh, the process would have looked much, much different. Um, you know, I... Uh, I don't want to get, you know, spiritual or religious or anything, but I really think that, you know, the moment that David made that decision and then it was done, there was instant regret. What did I just do? You know, what, like just, just no longer being in that body, no longer feeling the pain, the suffering, the agony, you know, all the stuff that caused him to make that decision. And so 
being able to immediately step out of that and then look and see and just know what the repercussions were going to be for the rest of us because suicide does not end pain it just explodes and all of that pain inside of that person just embeds itself in the people that are closest to them and yeah i don't uh, yeah. it's just yeah. it's hard oh absolutely absolutely a big component of the healing that you've talked about and i love i just love the way you put that that he would be proud of you for the the amount of healing that you've you've undergone um a big part of that has been your writing um you have been writing a blog since since shortly after we lost david and um just recently uh, you did something really, I think, smart and important and healthful. You wrote about um, that last night. You wrote about the end for David, and you did it in several pieces, uh, four or five parts to four. the story. Four, okay. And, and you published it, and it was... I mean, the way you described it to me, and I think the way you titled it as well, was like, this lives here now. So you've taken, you were able to take that tragic memory and you didn't want it erased because you always wanted to be able to have access to it, but you also didn't want it to haunt you. You didn't want to feel like you had the burden of holding on to the memory. You wanted to put it somewhere and you did that. And you did that in a very, very public way. Um, can you talk a little bit about the process of writing about that? And, and like, how does, how do these nuggets of wisdom come to you? How are you so insightful that, you know, I don't want to lose this, but I don't want to carry it either. I'm going to put it over here. Therapy. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> some of the intentionality of it has come from therapy and just being encouraged by therapists. Like, okay, you know, that writing is good for you. So just do it more, you know? Um, that being said, I wrote in high school too, and I would write these, you know, dramatic prose or this, uh, these, these short stories, fictional stories that were just intense and tragic usually. Um, and I can't tell you where that came from. Um, I'll call it like divine inspiration because it was always moments. I couldn't force it to happen. It's always been moments of these intense emotions. And then this like video will start playing in my head. And it's not a memory that I am like rehashing. It's not an imaginary argument I'm having. I mean, I do all that stuff too, but that's not what these moments are about. These moments are, I don't know, the characters show up and it just starts playing like a dream or something. Um, and I'll just get this urge and I have to write. And if I don't, it, it will sit there and ruminate in my head because I've done that before. I've tried to just ignore the story because there, there was one in high school that involved the death. Um, well, the story, not the, the person, my friend was not, they did not die, but in the story they did die. And I was too scared to write that one for fear that like something would come true. And, and that story sat in my brain and ruminated and ruminated and almost like tapped on the back of my head. Like, come on, you got to get this out. Um, 
but I would also like lose small pieces and small details of it. And then it wouldn't be as impactful. And so I, I learned um, from that point on to just go with it, you know, when those moments would hit me. Um, and so that being said, um, I have gotten a lot more practice. Um, and then some of it is, you know, intentional writing exercises, free writing, being encouraged by therapists to write about certain experiences and not be concerned with what comes out on the page. Um, and so I think, I think I've just been able to kind of like hone, um, a, a gift that I've been given because it's, it's not necessarily something I, I never sought out to be a writer. Um, well, you're the, you're the, gift. you're the best writing scientist I've ever met. I mean, and when <laughs> we say science, we're, you're not like a theoretical site, like you're in the lab doing experiments, trying to prove your thesis. You were like a hands dirty scientist, but you still write so brilliantly. It's, it's kind of amazing. And, and these, um, experiences, this recounting of your emotions over this past year. And then, and then of course the, the story of what happened on that fatal night, um, those all are published and we encourage our listeners to seek them out on medium, um, just under your name, full, yeah. Uh, you know, not, nothing to hide, right, Dusty? I mean, you you right. lay it all out there, and so Dusty read with it an your eye. own. Yeah, yeah, Dusty with an eye, and and <laughs> I think, I mean, read at your own uh, risk, I guess is how you say that, uh, listeners. Um, because as uh, vulnerable and honest as she's been here with us today, um, her writing is just in that same exact exact vein. Very, very powerful. Thank you for being here, Dusty. How are you doing, Sherry? I'm fine. I didn't talk much because I cried most of the time. I know. Sherry sat next to me and and cried. It's so hard. Dusty, we love you so much. I I think you know that, but I can never stop saying it. We love you so much. So impressed. Just so impressed. I all that you've experienced, all that you've gone through, and all that you're accomplishing to move beyond the grief and make it known to other people with the addiction and the loss and that you're not hiding behind anything and you're laying it all out there just to share your experience and hopefully prevent another tragic loss of a great father when he was not drinking, a wonderful husband when he was not drinking. So yeah, I couldn't even get through that. You did great. We, uh, I want to, I want to end with this. I want to tell a, a, a quick dusty story. Um, last early summer, June, I think it was, uh-huh. we were traveling, uh, cross country and we were coming through Dusty's town and, um, she agreed to meet us for breakfast and dusty, you took us. We didn't know. You just said, let's meet at this cafe. Okay, great. <laughs> and little did we Sounds know, so we, what's that? <laughs> Sounds so diabolical. <laughs> yeah. Ah, she trapped us in this cafe. But we were meeting at at your and David's breakfast place, and you hadn't been there since he had passed. And so um, we're there to reconnect with you and enjoy just an hour or so before we had to head out. And um, the all what was really cool to witness was that all the um, employees of, and the, the people that run the cafe were coming up and hugging you and, and 
saying how much they had missed you and being supportive. And um, it's just such a testament to how willing you are to let people into your life. It would have been really easy for you to meet us at a McDonald's by the highway and, uh, you know, not go through that emotional experience, but you don't hide from the emotions. Um, and you've always welcomed us in to, to really the inner parts of your life in a way that few people ever have. We feel closer to you than we do most people. Um, so just want to thank you for that. I don't have any point to make there. Just thank you. We love you so much. Um, we, I, I, when you texted me, uh, a couple of weeks ago and said, you were ready, you were ready to come on and talk about this. Um, we were thankful because we think your message is really powerful and important, but I had no idea how, um, I don't know how much I would be moved. Cause I already know the story, Dusty, but I'm sitting over here <laughs> fighting me. back I, the tears I, too. I too blubbering mess. I couldn't even talk. Yeah. You're, you're an amazing communicator and an amazing human. And we thank you for coming yes, on and telling and your story on the Untoxicated Podcast. I hope people read your posts on yeah. Medium. And read your blog on Medium. That's powerful. Yeah, There's good thank stuff you. on there, too. There's there's hope and, and positivity and joy. It's not just yeah. all sadness and grief. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We should make sure to mention that because you are you are full of light. Yeah. And you are full of love. So it's not all gloom and doom. One of the strongest humans I know. You've got to have some positive in there as well. No yeah. question. Yeah. Thank you very much. I will say that is the biggest gift that I have taken away from this entire experience um, from getting to know you guys and setting those boundaries to losing David in this year of first year of grief is I'm not afraid anymore <laughs> to, to, to be vulnerable, to share my experiences, to talk about what I've been through. I, I have no fear. Yeah. So I think that's been really pivotal because from what I'm told, people can see that they can see that I'm not holding anything back and some people appreciate it. Not everybody, but some people appreciate it. <laughs> well, we sure do. Yeah. Fearless indeed. Thank you for being here, Dusty. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.